Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. show here on the caregiver dave celebrity segment and i'm excited to welcome the program caregiver dave the sandy dave how are you what's going on man i'm doing awesome having a great day and uh just excited about life oh we're gonna be excited about this because we're gonna talk today about the new documentary the relentless one and i have with me emmy award-winning director m douglas silverstein and also kathleen black who the film is about guys thanks for stopping by how are you Great. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. Absolutely. Let's start out, Kathleen. How did you, because as we have somebody else on the line that has a tremendous story, my co-host caregiver Dave, and he'll tell about that at the end of this interview. What made you want to bring a story like this to film as a documentary? What, what, what kind of gave you that and how did that process begin? Uh, well, to be honest, it's funny, I'm just uh, done and talk, talking about this, but I mean, I think I didn't initially think about bringing my story to a documentary. I wrote a book and M knew somebody who was part of the team helping me with the book and he reached out to me um, about would I be willing to do it. And, and it was a bit of a process from there. You know, I have family and friends who have been through things the way I have and just because I want to share my story doesn't necessarily mean everybody um, wants me to but I felt it was really important to stand with people you know I'm a coach I help people grow and I want them to know I stand with them in the hard times not just the shiny times when we're all successful and life's looking good you know absolutely and uh tell us a little bit of Emma how you heard about the story uh, well, as she alluded to, it's definitely my fault that this film came together. <laughs> um, well, basically, I knew someone in the um, in like the author world that my last film um, is about somebody called the author incubator. And she um, works with people to develop marketing plans and help them do the books and all this stuff. And she we were just talking one day. And she goes, you know about Kathleen Black, don't you? I said, what do you mean? She goes, you don't know about her? You should look her up. And I looked her up and I was like, ooh, this is a inspiring person, um, very photogenic, shall we say, and a successful person. And she had written a book and I started reading a little bit of blurbs. I, and basically I reached out to her and said, uh, will you give me a little access? Will you let me do it? And she had a little trepidation that she uh, states there are other people and there are sensitivities because while she's brave enough to share this, you know, tremendous story, some of it very difficult, some may be triggering for the audience. Her family may not want it to be aired. It's not because everyone has their own part of the story and has their own feelings about the story. But what we went for was the absolute truth from multiple sources and just try to tell a very honest story, even with all of the challenging aspects that you probably already know about. So Kathleen, did you get permission from all of the interested parties to uh, expose the story to the world? It was actually my job as a producer director. I oh. called and, and called everybody. Kathleen was just a begrudgingly willing <laughs> subject matter. So how did they react um, when, when you, te technically a stranger, called them up asking them this? I just tried to say that I wanted to, um, you know, I, the story is out there in the book. Yeah. I'm a filmmaker and I want to, you know, try and do my own version of it, try and dig yeah, deeper into fair. what, and find the truth from firsthand accounts um, from, you know, because, the book is truly her vision. The film is sort of my vision from getting yeah. 
you know, the childhood friend, the adult friend, the mom, the sister, the people around in the community who she works with, uh, a pastor, just trying to get a, a large blanket of information to right. share the most honest and hopefully the most inspiring and touching um, film possible. Yeah, you know, they're making a film about my life and I'm wondering, will they have any feedback or veto power in anything that's in the film? Uh, do they have that kind of power? No, not unless you pay for it. Um, <laughs> no, there is, as a courtesy, I showed her what I was doing okay. and she admitted some of it's really difficult. Um, but no, it all depends on how it's made. And I just tried to find the truth, even the oh, yeah. warts and all and some of the, the tough stuff. And listen, yeah. Kathleen is the one who was brave enough to do it in a book anyhow. Yeah. And they're on board. They're, they're willing, they're willing, let's put it that way. <laughs> so, so Kathleen, first you wrote the book. So the book was the yeah. first part of the process. How difficult was that? And then now be putting this into a documentary, but how difficult was this first just writing it on paper? And writing uh, it, it yeah, it was really difficult. But I mean, I want to say, you know, I made a commitment to myself several years ago now to give away all my stories. So I was like, I don't want to live with any secrets or shame or anything that I feel like I should hide because for some reason I think people will judge me or think differently. I, I really believe that we're not what we've been through. We're who we choose to become. And how am I going to help people if I'm hiding pieces of me? So I found it was really empowering to give it all away. So they, my family and friends know that about me. Like I'm very open. I speak for a living. I'm on stages all the time. So I don't, I don't have secrets in that way. But writing my book, the story of my life so far, um, was, you know, honestly, it was excruciating. It was really hard. I say it's like taking a lake that's really calm on the top and dredging the whole bottom up. And it, it was hard. I had to relive a lot of those moments. And to be honest, I'm not that person anymore. So I had to go back to times in my life where I believed different things and I had difficulties and I had different people around me. And some of those people were really hard on me. So it, yeah, it was tough for sure. And then I asked the same question to you when you were writing the book, did you get everybody on board? I will say no, I did not initially get everybody. I'm not I didn't. I did not initially get everybody on board to write my story. I mean, I think anybody can talk about their life and they can share. It's part of my path and journey in life to share stories and inspire other people. And I, I feel like it makes what I went through worth something. You know, if I can share it with other people and they're inspired, truly, it's it's worth more. Like they say, you know, there's times I walked alone, right, in life, and it was really hard. And if I walk with other people during those times, I retell that story. I change my past and I change their future. And that's really, really empowering to me. So no, I did not get their permission, but I will say I was extremely delicate um, with what I shared in the story, but I also learned a big lesson. You know, there, there's a power in the truth and people who don't want to see certain things, you can't edit it enough to make them happy. I can take 90% of it away and they're still upset and, and that's okay. I've learned to live with that. Yeah. You know, I, I totally agree with her, uh, but what's interesting is the book and the film, while some similarities they are different experiences so i would encourage everyone to you know enjoy both really because if you think about it the um the book is her true sort of narrative and the chose the way that she chose to uh share it mine is from getting all of the people directly on camera which is kind of a hot seat position you know it's not easy um but by doing that, hopefully we've given a, a different experience and not one better than the other, but a different one because we're getting eyewitnesses to certain events and we're getting the emotional impact in the story from a film's perspective. How challenging is that with the documentary to get the people together, get the people on camera and make sure that the vision of what you want the documentary to be shows up on film the way you wanted it? Well, the one thing you know about documentary, documentary is you can set out and, and have, like I had many conversations with Kathleen before to really understand was this a, you know, it's a long-term commitment, it's expensive, uh, we live in different countries, was this going to be a worthwhile proposition for me to spend a couple of years of my life getting digging deep into it? So as she started to share, I understood, okay, these, I would ask her, who are people? Give me some names and I would research them and try to get different people to appear on camera. And I think we got the right people on camera, which is great, luckily. Mm -hmm. um, and there were some that, you know, just don't wanna be a part of something. The, the bottom line is when you're a documentarian, your job is to be a journalist. Your job is to try to tell the truth 
as clear as possible from as many points of view, and then really let the audience decide what they believe. But what I have found amazing is both at our world premiere at the Distinguished American Documentary Film Festival in Palm Springs, um, and some of the awards that we're already getting and some more screenings that are coming up, is how many people are responding to her story and to her specifically. So it's nice to sort of really be able to see when someone puts a book down, you may or may not know what they think, but when you're at, in a large audience in a, in a huge theater and people come up to her or come up to me and go, wow, like you're so brave for sharing that and that was so inspiring. That's really special because you get to understand and feel the, the impact. And now with a bunch of awards we're winning and have been winning and I think are gonna win more, um, it means it's, it's cracking through, you know, the, the larger ethos or the rather larger ether and um, people are enjoying it or finding value in it. How did the world premiere go? It was fantastic. <laughs> you know, I was more focused on how about let's get to the after party because there's only one, <laughs> which was awesome. But uh, I'm the guy who's lived with it most. I mean, in a weird way, I probably know, know more about Kathleen than anybody, maybe a little bit more than her because it's all so present and I've been staring at her in an editor because I also edited the film. So I, I know over and over and over again, it was just nice to not see her in multiple monitors, but to see her radiate in person and be the leader and inspiring person she is on the red carpet party and after party versus in a screen. But to see it on a massive screen in a 500, um, 500 uh, seat theater was, you know, come on, it's pretty amazing. Wow. And, and Kathleen, were you, let's, before we talk about a little bit about the documentary, were you happy about once you finally saw it on, I mean, in the theater and be able to see it? And um, of course I was, I was also relieved, right? I had my children with me. I had my sister with me. I had my right hand um, in my business with me. So I was very relieved to have them see it. And myself, I hadn't seen the final version. I hadn't seen the final locked in version. So I was happy. I was relieved. And I think I felt really good when people came up to me and told me how they interpreted the movie because or the documentary, because I'm in it, I will never have the same experience, right? I'm too, I'm way too subjective. It's personal for me. Um, so that that was really, uh, really, really nice. And I think it's also learning that a documentary, as Em's told me many times, I mean, it's a snapshot of time. And I mean, it's two years later, like I've had nine lives already, right? Like I'm already halfway a new person by then. So some of it feels a little bit um, like I'm looking at a time capsule, right? Yeah. So I think the thing that is ever present though is the message you carry forward, the past that you are, have been letting go of, but I think it will sort of be evergreen to you, it won't be, but it'll be evergreen to an audience because we did purposely did not talk about COVID, did not talk about how difficult the process was shooting during COVID um, because I personally didn't want that. I want people to just enjoy, okay, look at this person, look at what she's been through. I've said, you know, at, at other times, she reminds me of the Terminator movies where there's this guy coming after and, and they get knocked down, knocked down, and then they somehow come back up, you know, like it reanimated and that's, you know, it, the movie is called The Relentless One, but it could be called, you know, The Terminator, Kathleen Black, too. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know you were looking forward to the after party. I mean, that's that's where I met my filmmaker at my friend's after party documentary. Oh, and as a result, you know, I was so tired. It was Palm Springs. I live in L.A. We just wanted to go home and we were tired. And something inside of me says, go mingle. And so I did, and this guy says, oh, you know, tell me about, so did you meet any new prospects uh, at the after party? What, what, what happened there, anything? Are you talking to me or to Kathleen? Yeah. No, I'm talking to you. Uh, you. What the heck? <laughs> well, I know people came up to Kathleen. Uh, someone asked me, hey, is it okay if I talk to her? I'd like her to talk to my <laughs> business group. I'm like, yeah, go talk to her. I mean, she's a person, I'm a person, so. I know that a bunch of people inquired with her about her story when she speak to the groups, which she already does uh, as a business leader and as a, you know, empowerment coach and performance coach and featured speaker, you know, everywhere. Um, Kathleen, but, did any opportunities come up? 
Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, to come in and uh, speak, which I love. I'm passionate about what I do. And now that COVID's done, I love being in a room with people. You just feed off of the energy. It's not this, like, I love Zoom, obviously. And I mean, no insult, we're on Zoom. Um, but it's just, it's not, yeah, it's, it's not the same. You can feel people when you're speaking in the same room. So sure. I was really Yeah, happy. absolutely. And so, Kathleen, tell us about the documentary now. And then I want to get some of M's uh, take on it, too. Well, I mean, the document, yeah, the documentary is a uh, take on my life. I mean, the book was trying to walk, I, I did the Camino de Santiago, right, which is the track I did 840 kilometers across Spain. So when I wrote the book, I wanted people to feel like they're walking with me, like it was just a natural conversation on telling them about my life. Whereas the documentary is taking those key high impact moments and showing the difficulties when I was younger and then showing what they, how they fueled my future. So that people can see, you know, some of the adversity we go through actually can be fueled to make our lives better. It's not something that has to hold us back. So I think the documentary doesn't have as much content as the book. It has more specific, impactful um, pieces like, you know, having domestic abuse at home, leaving home very young, having challenges in business, building my business that led me to creating my own business. But at the time, they were quite devastating. And then fast forward to to now. So the documentary is meant to inspire. End of the day. Wow. Were you on an emotional roller coaster during this whole process, uh, having any regrets or remorse and then coming <laughs> up and down, you know, like a yeah, young Kathleen, tell us. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, sure. I've had many times where I thought, what the heck were you thinking? Like, absolutely. <laughs> and that's not offense. M knows that's not offense to him. It's just it's a huge vulnerability showing the most difficult times in your life on camera. And, you know, I've made changes in my life since the documentary and it's hard for me, right. To have something go out that there has been major changes that I made. So yeah, I mean, I've certainly wondered if I did the right thing, but I truly feel my purpose in my life is bigger than my own. Like I've gone through a lot of difficult things. And again, I truly believe it has to fuel more than just myself. And, and I really want to recreate it into something positive. And I, I do know the documentary is helping to do that. So end of the day, I'd still pick to do it. But do I have moments where I think I was completely off my rocker? Yes, many. Yes, I do. So the end I of the day, it, no regrets. I think, Kathleen, when you talk about growing your business, and developing it to where it is today. That's the thing that's going to inspire lots of people with documentary because lots of people, especially in your field or other fields, it's a service-based business field. There's a lot of days that just, well, it's just ever going to go right. Uh-huh. And for you to share that information that when you did struggle at times and how you overcame, and then here's the result. It's so powerful because a lot of times we all are in that rut. And I tell my clients as well, when I'm working with them specifically enough in social media and how to bring it. If you don't really aren't raw and tell your story to people, you're not going to grow a tribe. You're not going to grow a following because people are not going to believe in you. They're just going to think you're cookie cutter like everyone else. So that's how you're inspiring people through that documentary is being able to really talk about those struggling times and really giving it in a raw way compared to some people will just cookie cutter. Hey, I'm a coach now. I don't need to bring up the past anymore. And how much of a mistake is that? So this is a little bit of a two-part question. Well, I think, I, I think, you know, I believe that the truth is like, we don't stand in our power without the truth. We don't, you know, if I'm trying to hide from something, I'm not standing in my authenticity and I want to help people legitimately. I don't want to be one of those coaches who's like, here's how you be successful, but like they live at home and their mom pays all their bills and they've never lifted a finger in their life. Right. Like I want them to know, Hey, I sat there with a baby crying inside, taking out the garbage, crying myself, because how am I going to pay my bills? And I'm starting a new career. You know, I know what it is to go through that and how to be in a chaotic space and make a choice to move yourself somewhere else. And that takes a lot of faith, but it's totally doable. It completely is. And I want people to see that. So to me, there, there is an honesty in it. If I'm not showing them the hard stuff, because that's what propels you out. If you choose to let it, unfortunately, a lot of people don't choose to let it, but it, it, it is a power if you choose to step into it. And um, do you agree with me, especially doing documentaries and the success you've had is that you, those people's stories need to be so out there to to create that tribe and following that people want to follow based on true true meaning right can't be cookie cutter can't be ordinary it has to be something extraordinary that they've done meaning of of challenges in life especially when you talk about documentaries yeah the truth is in any good story you can't have a flatline experience 
You have to have yeah. peaks and valleys where you see a character face great adversities. You think that's over. They go, we'll try it again. They keep going. I mean, in very small snippets, um, Kathleen's story is multifaceted of why people would be interested in her. And I believe in the film as well, because it's not just which would feel like enough, oh my God, witnessing domestic abuse, having physical and emotional traumas herself, uh, having what she, as she mentioned, having a kid really early, all alone, spending the last two years of high school, homeless. Um, there's a friend in the film that said, I don't know how she did it. She was like holding a baby and she was going to Home Depot to fix up one of the, her rental properties, to fix up one of her houses she's gonna sell. I mean, she just keeps going. She was, she was brought into this exciting business opportunity where she got a company out of a quarter million dollars worth of debt for that to be, blow up in her face um, by, yeah. a, not, not by a not, in my opinion, not her words, reputable person to then building a seven figure on the way to eight figure business where she speaks everywhere and going to be speaking globally and and ted talks this year i mean it's pretty freaking amazing so we have the good fortune uh as an audience and for me as a filmmaker to demonstrate how this person has overcome and overcome and overcome but it's not just childhood it's not just business it's personal it's like financial it's all of these things and you know it would be a boring story if she if she didn't if it was like oh all this stuff happened to her. Too bad. Yeah, and, and and there was no success through that ride. But you'd feel bad for her as opposed to being enriched by it and go, holy poop. If she can go through that. I can do it too. That's, that, that's, that's where a leader that, that leads a tribe and following does. They have something yeah. that they say, there's something special about that person. I'm going to follow that person. And I'm going, because I, I want to resonate and motivate me for the next day. And that's the key thing. And so to Kathleen work, can we watch the documentary and check out and also purchase your book because the book's still available too, I'm sure. Well, let me speak to the documentary and I'll let her speak to the book. So we are in a festival run now and um, I actually can, should I tell them? Should I tell them, Kathleen? I, I've been waiting to hold this actually. We have our, so it's going to be in festivals for the next um nine months to a year, then we, we've had initial discussions with distributors. Um, so then it'll be broadly streaming, but I will say, I will give you an exclusive, which is, uh, I'm not, I wasn't planning on doing this, Neil. <laughs> I like it, this improv too, it's good. Uh, June 17th, opening night at 7.30 p.m. at the Marina Del Rey uh, fest, uh, Film Festival. We will be premiering at the Cinemark 16 in a massive screen, great sound, opening night as the sort of founding premiere uh, film launching the festival that night. Wow. That's so if you're in LA on June 17th, that's our next screening. Dave, down the block from Dave me. is in LA. So June 17th, you can put it in your calendar, mark it. So Kathleen, that's exciting, isn't it? Very, it's very exciting. I get to spend a lot of time in California, but it's also <laughs> exciting for the, the uh, chance to screen the movie again. Yeah, we're thrilled. All right, and also purchase your book. Where can we go? Yeah, you can. You can get. Uh, I have two books, but they're both on my website, KathleenSpeaks.com, KathleenSpeaks.com, or Amazon. Uh, you can purchase both of them on Amazon.com as well. All right, you guys are fabulous, and uh, we see uh, resilience in. Mr. Silverstein today, we don't, we, we, that'll be a kind of, and how he had to deal with things in the heat. And we appreciate everyone coming on today. Dave, again, great information. Kathleen, amazing story. And that's what you got to go and say, remember yourself every day. What I went through, the more I share those stories, people are going to understand I could be like Kathleen someday. And that is a leader. And that's amazing. And continued success. Yeah, and, and M. Douglas, keep your success going too. And uh, you are definitely understand that documentary thing and you really broke it down for us today. And I appreciate you coming by and explaining how powerful this documentary will be. Look Thank for me on so June much. 17th. I'm going to bring my filmmaker with me Get to meet you. Oh, well, that sounds good. It'd be great to have you. I'll, uh, what, what, what did those critics say? I'll save your seat in the aisle. Is that what it is? <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, it's a real pleasure to be here. You know, any chance we get to share an inspiring uh, story, whether it's my film 
or someone else's, it matters because it lifts up large communities of people who aren't feeling good about themselves or their situations. And this is an opportunity just to help people feel good about themselves and see a greater purpose for their life as opposed to be being in pain, to be in power and purpose. All right, well, fabulous. Thanks again, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks Thank so you. All right, guys, that was the Caregiver Dave Celebrity segment. Guys, take care. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show. And, uh, and I'm also the sports category director for Podcast Magazine. And I'm interviewing somebody who, again, was an arch rival as a fan growing up as a Steeler fan, Eric Metcalf, three-time Pro Bowler, Cleveland Brown, and much, much more. Eric, thanks for stopping by. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Sure. All right. So let's talk. Let's talk. And as I, I love your setup with all your, your uh, on the wall of fame of all the things you did. Did you imagine when you started that you were going to be, did you always want to be a football star? Was that something growing up you wanted? 100%. Okay. And, it, and it's because of this picture right here. Okay. My dad. My dad. Oh, oh yeah. I remember that. Okay. All right. Well, because of Terry Metcalf, I, I wanted to be a football player because that's what my dad was doing. And so, you know, a lot of times we grew up as kids, everybody wants to do what their dad is doing. You know, whether it be a fireman, a, a police officer, what have you. My dad was a football player, and so that's who I wanted to be. And that's so that's so right off the bat. So how young were you when you started to to want to wanna throw the football with your dad and really be into this? How young? Well, well, you know, the thing about it is my mother and father, they had me in high school. And so when my dad really got to playing, he was in college and I was young enough where I could go to the games, but you know, so he wasn't around at that time as far as me playing catch with him. But I started playing football at, at seven years old. And, and I remember my mother telling me she was going to take me down there to sign up for, for football. And um, she said, but she kept saying, when you get there, you have to tell him you're eight. Because <laughs> it started, because it started at it was eight and nine, eighty niners, and I was only seven. She's like, you gotta tell them you're eight. And so I went down and I was like, I'm eight years old. And, then, and a lot of my friends were going also, and they weren't eight either. But we were all saying we were eight years old. And so that's when I, I really fell in love with it, just because that was that first opportunity to get out there and play in pads. So starting out at the beginning. Now, did you have uh, like uh, a little weight on your shoulders because your father was such a good football player? You know, as a as a kid, I never really thought about it. I mean, I'm, I'm sure uh, other people did, because I would always hear uh, older guys and, and 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 people talk about they can't wait to see me play if if I ever play and everything. And I remember hearing people talk about that, but I never even really thought about the the weight or the pressure of being Terry Metcalf's son until I got older. But and then when I finally got older. The only time I, I didn't really think about it because I, I was good at it. I mean, if, if you're you're not really good at it, I think you feel that weight or that pressure. But I, I knew early on and in, in when I was playing that I, that I was pretty good at it. So you knew you were pretty good at it. Now, were you the, one of the best players on your team all the time? Because people think about, you know, a professional athlete, they have to – that's the thing. Everyone says, hey, I want to be a pro football star. I want to be a pro basketball star. You have to be the very best of most of the time – than everybody. Was it always you were the best or was it a process to get better and better to become? I, I, to, to be honest, I think I was the best football player on my team until maybe somebody would say somebody in Cleveland. But, but from little league on through high school, through college, I was the best player on my team always. And, and, and I, I, that's no doubt in my mind. And, and, and that's, not, that's not a slight against everyone else. It's no. just reality of it. And so, and, and then if we talk about Cleveland, I probably think I was the best player there, but it's all debatable on what you like and, and, and who likes me and who likes other players. Exactly. So let's go, how much of it was talent and how much was, was preparation? Well, at a, at a young age, a lot of it was just talent. It was it was genetics, God-given ability. Um, at seven, eight years old, I was probably faster than kids nine and ten, eleven, twelve. And so, so I always ran track in a in a uh, older age group because 
it wasn't my coaches just had me run with older guys like on relays and everything because I could help their team better than someone else could. So, so at a young age, it was it was more so, like I said, talent and, and genetics. And so I knew then that if given the opportunity, um, I, I would be able to be successful at it. The only thing I worried about at that age was I was really short. <laughs> I, I was I was I was really short, and and, and people. And I, you know, and I, I think people's like, oh, he's too small to go out there and play football. Um, it's, it's not going to work. And I'll never forget my dad used to tell me, don't let anyone tell you you're too small because that's the same thing they used to tell me. He Were said, you guys the same, close to the same height, you and your dad? Um, as, as players, yes. When we got the NFL and, yeah, we were about the same. So he was maybe an inch taller. I was maybe a little heavier. But, yeah, he used to tell me that. And so I, I never really worried about it. I just – I just went out there and played and, and, and tried to do the best that I could. When you think about size and small, small backs, and, you know, what do you think makes the small backs so elusive and such a – I mean, if you think of the greatest small backs, I think one of them would definitely be Barry Sanders. And then you think of other – it goes on and on and on different people. Uh, why is it everyone thinks they need to have the prototypical running back when what you could do with so many different things? And make you so versatile. I think it's uh, 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 cycle cycles in football. I mean, because you know when my dad and those guys were playing, they used a lot of smaller guys. My dad, Greg Pruitt, guys like that who could do a lot of things. You know, catch the ball, run the ball, and, and return kicks. And then then the cycle changed, and, and they were using these uh, big old guys who were playing ground and, and pound football. And 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 now it's gotten back to. Uh, a game where because it's so spread out that guys my size can can prosper because you have the Christian McCaffrey's you have you have the Dalvin Cooks you have Alvin Kamara's and those guys who can do everything so they're more valuable to a team so it, it, it's all about the, how the game is being played and, and right now I, I wish I was playing in this game because when I was playing it wasn't played like there was more big backs but Guys like myself, Barry Sanders, we had to try to figure it out, and, and Barry did as well, for sure. Oh, absolutely, and they and they figure it out because everyone say, "Oh, I want the big back," but then you find out what you can do as the prototypical running back. So let's jump. I'm jumping back into the whole thing now. Were you highly? So you said you were the best player in high school. How much were you recruited to go play college? Because again, you're a smaller back, even though you're doing so well in high school and you're the best player on your team. Were you highly recruited in, out of high school? I was recruited by almost everyone. And I mean, I got, I had so many letters from schools that I, I just got sick of it, but I wasn't ready to make a decision. So I, I actually took my five visits. I went to uh, Notre Dame. I went to Nebraska. I went to Georgia, Texas, and Miami. And so and all of, there was so many other schools that I could have gone and visited. I just wanted, I didn't want to. And, and so, because in my mind, other than going to uh, Miami at the time, I, I was thinking track also, you know, I was, and so I had to, that's what I was thinking about it. So I was recruited by, heavily recruited by everyone. I think size did play a factor into when a, a story I heard later on after I was at Texas. So like, once uh, I, I was being recruited by Texas, uh, they asked me to send my film. And, and they told me that the, the, all the coaches were in there watching my film. And Fred Akers was our head coach, asked the, the staff, what do they think? And they, he said, they told me it was unanimous that everyone was like, no, he can't do this in, in, in the Southwest Conference because I played in a, in a private school league. And so they thought the things that I was doing, I couldn't do that uh, on, a, on a bigger scale. And, and then Coach Akers told them, well, I think he can. And the rest is history. I guess I could. So right out your freshman year, were you playing a lot or did it take time to get to that? No, I, I played a lot as a freshman. I didn't start, but I played a lot. I played every, every game. I mean, you know, when you've been carrying the ball and catching the ball in your entire life, you always wanted more. So I, I feel like as a, as a freshman, I could have had it more, but you know, it, it worked out the way it did and, I, and I'm fine with it. Exactly. It's, it is what it's, what it is happens and everything. And when you were here at, at Texas, how good were you guys when you were at Texas? Well, <laughs> we won in, in my, in my 
four years, I think we won 24 games. Okay. And, and so my, my freshman year, we won eight and we were ranked. Uh, and my junior year, we won seven. Okay. Seven, seven or eight. And we were ranked. But other than that, we, we weren't very good. And, and, and I, I'll never forget. I'm glad you asked that because I, I, I got to Texas and we, we, of course, we're not going through pads and all that. But once we really start playing in, in, in practice as freshmen, I'm, I, I go to my college roommate and I was like, you know, either I'm real good or Texas football isn't what they make it out to be. And, and he looked at me and he just says, why can't it be both? <laughs> and I was like, you got a point there. So, but I was like, I, I, I guess I think I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good and it's going to, it's going to work out for me. Wow. I mean, and so playing in Texas, was that a, did you love the campus and stuff, especially the Saturdays in Texas? Oh, I loved it. I, I, and I still love it. I mean, the only thing I regret about the whole time being there is that we didn't win enough games. I didn't, I was, I didn't beat Oklahoma. I lost to them four straight years. I didn't beat Texas A&M. I lost to them four straight years. The two teams were supposed to beat, right? And so that, that's the only thing I regret is that we, our team as a whole, we weren't good enough to win those games. We were, we had, we gave ourselves a fighting chance, but we weren't the team that like everyone feared on, on Saturday afternoons. And so if, if I could change anything, it would be that, that, and that's it. That we won more football games because I had a blast of the time when I was there and, 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 and it was good football. It, we, we just didn't win games. And I, you know, I was even as a freshman, I was like, I didn't get the ball as much as I wanted, but it was still good football. It was fun. And I know it's going to get better. And and because even uh, Mike Lombardi came to me as a freshman and he was at our pro day and I didn't do anything because I was doing track mm -hmm. at the time. And he was at he was at the 49ers then. And he comes to me, and says. I'm, I'm going to draft you when you when you're a senior. And I'm like, yeah, OK, whatever. <laughs> He's like, I, I am. I, I promise I'm going to draft you. And, and bam, look what happens. He he's at the Browns and, and I get drafted. <laughs> so what were you uh, uh, like wanted really well in the NFL like you were in college or did they think the small back well we're going to take a chance on you type of thing the Browns or was it they knew it was a really good draft pick to draft you you know I, I think that guys knew that I, I was a good football player I mean you know what it's not about I think it was the it was more so the fact that I could do a lot of things and I could play running back if I had to. They see me split out as a receiver uh, in the Texas offense, return kicks and punts. And so when you, you get someone who can do all those things, I think regardless of size, people take chances on them. And, 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 and I don't say it's a chance on me because I went in the first round, but they, they figured I could do these things in the NFL and be successful with it. And I think that's why the Browns, uh, I know that's why the Browns uh, traded all those picks and moved up and, and got me. All right. So a lot of times now we're again talking to Eric Metcalf. And I think that in a lot of ways after your career in the NFL, people were like, where's Eric Metcalf now? Now he has a podcast. We're going to get to that soon. But going to the Cleveland Browns, uh, how amazing the time you are you had with the Browns, because think about it, you were winning. You were very close many times, just didn't get to the Super Bowl. It was amazing, and, and which is 180 from what I thought it was going to be. Cause you know, when I got to Cleveland, when I've got drafted by the Browns, you know, you're happy to be drafted. You, wow. Everybody wants the ultimate dream and goal to be drafted and be playing in NFL. And so I'm just definitely happy with that. I never really thought of myself playing for the Cleveland Browns though. When I was, when I was coming out and, and, and working towards the draft in my mind, I wanted to be in, LA with the Rams. Mm -hmm. I had friends and I, I thought I was, I thought I was Hollywood kind of guy <laughs> and I should, and I should be in, in, in LA. And, but, and, and then I got drafted by the Browns. I go to mini camp in, in May and it's snowing. And I'm mm -hmm. like, I'm like, Oh, this isn't going to work. Cause this is May. What's going to happen when it's November, December, it's going to be really snowing. And they're playing on 
natural dirt, not natural grass at that stadium. No, <laughs> natural, natural dirt, yeah. <laughs> that was natural dirt. And so I was like, how am I going to be able to play the way I play in, in, in Cleveland? And, you know, and didn't really think about it. I held out my freshman, I mean, my, my rookie year because of contract. Um, finally get there, started practicing and, and, and playing. And everything was smooth sailing. I had a world of a time. The guys took me in like I had been there forever and we were winning games and, and I was getting to do the things that I wanted to do. So it was great the entire time I was there. I wish I, wish I could say I played my entire career with the Cleveland Browns, but even had I not got traded in 1995, I still wouldn't have been a Brown my entire career because the team left. Exactly, the team left. And so that could go to the stories of, being part of that, but you were part of two, I guess, of the hardest times of your life, right? Against the Broncos, right? Two years. You were both years, right? No, I was only I was only there once in '89. So I, yeah, I missed the I missed the drive and the fumble, and then they just beat us. My in '89, they beat us uh, out there in Denver in the AFC Championship. Oh, so you were a year before. So were you? You weren't there those two years. So your fresh your rookie year was in '89. Yes. Okay. So you were the, 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 supposed to be the thing that was going to change everything, right? You're the guy, that, that final missing component of the Browns. And so you had a cast of characters on that team, right, for sure. Tell us, remind us some of the players again. We had Webster Slaughter, Reggie Langhorn, Kevin Mack, Ozzie Newsom, Eddie Johnson, Clay Matthews, Felix Wright, Hanford Dixon, uh, Frank Minifield, uh, Tony Jones, Mike Babb. Brian Brennan, yeah, and we had a we had a slew of guys. We we had a very good team. We we had a good team of uh, player wise. We had we had good coach, and we just you know it just didn't just didn't work out for us. I mean, and that, it was funny that year we thought we were going to the Super Bowl. We, we, Reggie Langhorn, myself, and Webster Slaughter. We used to always talk about who was going to be Super Bowl MVP once we got into the playoffs because we were going to play Denver in the uh, AFC Championship. We had already beaten them during the season. We're like, we're gonna, we're gonna go beat these guys, I and mean, we're, we're gonna be in the Super Bowl. And unfortunately, they had, they, they didn't listen to us, and and, and they won games, and and it, it never so happened. So was that was three years in a row that you guys lost to the Broncos? No, I think no, no, they they lost two in a row, and then they they didn't make it to the championship the next year. And then when I came, we went back. Oh, okay. People always remember the drive and fumble and forget that year. Right. And so, you know, and so what's crazy about it is when you play in the NFL and you get that close, especially in your rookie year, you think there's no way I'm not ever going to make it to the Super Bowl. But no season's the same. And there is a way I'm never going to make it to the Super Bowl because it never happens. <laughs> Maybe now it would have been a lot easier in the way they give opportunities for teams to based on these balance, the schedule always giving teams that win a lot to have a more difficult schedule. That wasn't like that then. The no, way I mean, I think, I mean, even the year I, before I got traded in 1994, we were 11 and five and we, and we didn't even win the division because the Steelers did. Um, 11 and five, 12 and six, if you count the playoffs and three of our losses were to the Steelers. And so, and so that's, it was just, it was just a tough road. And, you know, people take, people take for granted, especially like if you've been playing in New England in the past few years, you take it for granted that you can get to the Super Bowl. When you, when you have people like me and, and, and other guys who, who never got to the Super Bowl and, and just had hoped to get there. And I, you know, cause my whole career, I was like, I could just run out of that tunnel one time on Super Bowl. I worry about winning it later. I just want to be able to run out of the tunnel as a player. That was that used to be my thing. Wow. And, but it never happened. Never happened. But you did have some pretty amazing things. Now, uh, talking about you were part of, I didn't know that you're, so you're part of the move then, right? From the Browns? No, no, I'm technically I'm not because um, they, they played their last season in 95. They traded me in the spring of 95 to Atlanta. So they went, so they played that last season. I was already in Atlanta. So do you know, but you knew it was going to happen before that, right? I, I, I'd been told, I had heard little rumblings of it. And, and so not only did they, they, they trade me and they, they weren't winning games, but I, got, I felt good because I got to go to Atlanta and we went to the playoffs. And, and, you know, and so we, I, had, I had fun that year. I got the ball 
I got the ball a lot. I caught 104 passes. I ran the ball. I returned some kicks. I returned some punts. And so I had I had fun doing what I thought that I would do my entire career in Cleveland. Oh, wow. So getting traded. So you had rumblings of this before the trade. Then once you were traded, you're like, thank goodness I wasn't part of that whole get up and leave because everyone, you know, you're, you're a beloved Brown. If you would have went and, and been part of that move, who knows, right? At least in a way you can stay a Brown forever in a way, because those other guys, they got, they had to be part of it and part of that Raven process and how, you know, Cleveland people still are upset about, right? Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I think with in cases like myself, I think no matter what, because even still today, people in Cleveland treat me as if the Browns are the only team I play for. And that's how I actually feel sometimes. I mean, that's because I, I love the Browns and love being a part of that tradition for, for so long that I, I feel like I, I did enough things and, and, and played, uh, played well enough there that people want me to be associated with that franchise when we're talking about people from Ohio and Cleveland Browns fans. So I feel good about it, regardless of whether I was traded, even though I asked to be traded or not. I just feel good that I wanted to, that I did a, enough good things for a story franchise that, that people associate me with them. Did you play? So you played for the Falcons and that, who were you, did you play with that for the Falcons? I thought you played a couple other teams. So, so I, the Browns traded me to the Falcons. I played there two years. I left to San Diego as a free agent. They traded me to the Cardinals. And so then I played one year. I went to Carolina and played with the, the, the Redskins. So I guess it was a theme of me getting traded. I got traded to a bird each time. <laughs> and that's where you became more and more special teams, right? Then, right? Yeah, because it, it was towards the end of my career. And, and, and at that time, you know, no one was going to use me like I wanted to be used. So it, it was kind of tough. I mean, all these so-called offensive geniuses couldn't figure it out, right? And, and, and were scared to, to be innovative as they are today. When, when we're talking about June, June Jones and, and Miles Davis and those guys and, and everybody in, in, in at the Oilers, when they were using the run and shoot, people like, this can't work. People, this, this can't work in the NFL. This will never be successful. Now everybody's running a form of that, right? And, yeah. so, and that's what's successful. And that's how people are getting all these points and all these yards. And so people back then were just scared to do it. Now you have guys who are just playing, putting their best players on the field and trying to win games. Because if you have if you have four or five people like myself who play running back receiver and all that, and you spread everybody all over the place, what can a defense really do? And then, and that's and that's what these guys have have, have picked up on in, in these later years. All right. So let's go from we talked about life after football. Did you have a decision? Did you know what you were going to do after football? Your football career is over? Nah, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I do know that because of my, my track break background that I, I wanted to be involved with track. So, mm -hmm. so prior to uh, actually retiring, I had, I had started a, a, a track club here in Seattle okay. for high school kids. And, and so during the summer, I would train these guys and I'd had other coaches, obviously. So when I went to training camp, they would take them to the national meets and all that. But I was really involved with that because I was trying to give these young guys, because it was all high school guys when I first started, uh, I was trying to give these guys the opportunity to get to, to college on someone else's dime, right? Because everyone can't be a football player. Everyone can't be a basketball player, but you can go run track anywhere and you can get some money from uh, schools from all divisions and, and make it easier on yourself. And so that's what I was trying to do and, and I established that. And then I, um, later on brought girls on and I was really coaching us. Then I started coaching high school track. Okay. I, I coached football, high school football with my dad and at, at another high school for a couple of years, but it's not really my thing. I don't, I don't really like it because <laughs> to, to be good at, you got to really work at it. You got to put in a lot of time, but, but track, I, I was able to be more one-on-one -on -one with these kids. And so I, we were doing well. My team won state championships. I had a lot of guys and girls who, uh, made like U.S. national teams, oh. uh, did a lot of people who won national championships at Junior Olympics and everything like that. And so then that evolved to me uh, coaching track at the University of Washington. Wow. Okay. So yeah. coaching and track. So, yes. so were you happy you chose that over coaching football? If you're a good coach? 
yeah, yeah, you know, because my thing has always been like when you when you're coaching football, I could coach, say, Randy Moss. Right. But if we don't have a quarterback or a line, you'll never know that I'm coaching the best receiver in the league. You, you never know. Yeah, that's right. But whereas when we're talking about coaching track, no matter what event, the kid doesn't have to win, doesn't even have to make the finals. But you know, when you coach that kid, if they're improving, whether it be height, distance, or time, they, they, are, they, can, they can win every, every meet or event they're in without ever winning because they're getting better every single time. And so that, and that's what I like about that as far as the, the, the individuality of it is that we can tell how kids or, or athletes are getting better regardless of what happens in the other lanes. Absolutely. Okay. So you, how long did you coach for? Are you still coaching track or? So I, I, I coached, I coached track at UW from, I want to say 2012 to like 2018. Um, and at this time, for most of the time, I still had my track club. I kind of just let that go away because it takes a lot of time, but now I do um, consulting with Nike track and field um, and, and, and a lot of high, and high school kids and everything like that. And so, that's that, that's what I'm doing now. So I'm, I'm still involved with it in, in track, but not not so much coaching. Anymore. Got it. Got it. All right. Let's talk about the podcast. Did you ever think you were going to do a podcast? Was that something when someone approached you to do a podcast? How did that happen? You know, it, it, it's kind of weird because prior to COVID and all that kind of stuff, I was thinking I should do a podcast, but but I didn't know what I really wanted to do it about. You know, because I I didn't know because. I'm in the smoking cigars. So in my mind, I wanted to be smoking cigars and, and, and talking sports or whatever. That's that was my mind. But the thing is, how was I going to be able to get this done? You know, because I would want people to be there smoking. But in order to do that, you got to have be around these guests. Exactly. I didn't know, ever know how that was going to be done. And then, you know, when, when, when the Believe Network uh, contacted me, they said, we can, you can do this about the Brown like okay, I could do that because, because I, I, you know, I, I do some, I do a pregame and postgame show in Cleveland on channel 19 WIOIO there. And so that's fun, but I, I don't, you, you can't really say what you want to say. So yeah, on the podcast, you can say more. Yeah, you're, you're right. trying to be politically correct in a way and not rip the coaches right. or right. say certain things because, you know, it's, it's a, it's a coach, it's a Homer show, right. Compared to when you're doing a podcast where you can really break things down with, yeah, and, and, you know, and, and a lot of people, a lot of times people don't like it, but it's okay because it's my opinion. And when it's your opinion, you don't really have to, you don't have to really apologize because that's your opinion. Everyone has their opinion. Right. And so I, I think when I, when I, when I talk Brown stuff and, and, and a lot of people get mad at, at some things that I said, but when I when I tell them, the things I'm saying are from my experience as a player. <laughs> as a player, that changes your opinion and your experience as it because my experience as a player as to what happened or what I think should have happened is different than yours. And so I, I like having that perspective because uh, I'll use Odell Beckham for example okay. when he was with the Browns. People were talking about he was he was mad. He was he was hurting the team because he wanted the ball and all. he wasn't getting the ball, blah, 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 when you should be about winning. And I said, this is, I understand this, but when we were 11 and five in 1994, I asked for a trade because I, I was not getting the ball like I wanted to. And so as a player, you, you, you like to win, but in the end, it's, it's about being an individual. And being successful as an individual, because that's what's going to get you paid. That's what's going to get you noticed and things like that. So that's so I understand how he felt. And they were losing and he's not getting the ball. So that makes it even worse. <laughs> right. right. And so, and so these are the kind of things that I'm able to try to get across to, to these people, uh, to people on, on fans on, on the podcast. And by the podcast, that may, gives you a lot more, uh, I guess, accessibility to your fan, to the fans, 
with a podcast because now they're reaching out to Eric Metcalf versus reaching out to W to the station 19 or different places. So what you're saying, you're making that connection with your fans that are listening and seeing what they want to hear and what they want to talk about compared to if you're like on another station with certain types of sponsors, it's on the radio where you really can't do the way it's your podcast. You can do a little bit more. You can really break things down more and you can hear the feedback from the fans in a little different way than if you're doing a drive time show, right? Right, yeah, because you know you sit there and you can say, okay, I want to talk about Kevin Stefanski today. And this, and I can just go on about that where, you know, you're talking about- Because you're not working for callers, so right. you can- <laughs> Right, so when you're on TV and everything, it's about blocks and we're going to talk about this in this segment. And suddenly say, no, I'm going to talk about the defense today <laughs> or the offense and what have you and why we're not doing whatever. That, and, I, and I love having that ability to just do and say what I want and talk about the things that I want to get off my chest with, with, with my host as well. How much uh, time do you put into the podcast weekly to prepare? You know, it, it, it all depends. Like move, working up to the draft, I try to figure out, I'm, and it's hard because no one ever knows who we're going to draft. We know what we need, but who we're going to draft. My, my thing right now is, I, I feel like we got to get Davion Clowney, so I'm trying to get him back. So I'm keeping an eye on that kind of thing. So, so I'm always in in in, uh, in the news in Cleveland, trying to search things, trying to see what people are talking about, especially especially because I'm here in Seattle, so I'm not getting all that same news. So it makes it a little harder. So, but I'm always trying to poke around and see if I can find some stuff just so when it is time to uh, have have a show that I can I can talk about and be up on it. That's great. That's that's. Uh... Definitely. Uh, what, how much? What about social media? How's that changing? Especially having a podcast. Have you put more time and emphasis into your social media? You know, I, 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 not as much. I, I probably should. I only have Twitter. I don't mess around with yeah, Ram and all that. But and Twitter is the best for sports. So stick to what you know. Yeah, but my thing is, I, I when I get on there. There are so many times that there are things that I want to say to people and I'm like, I can't say that. And so it's not fair. And so, <laughs> so, and so I won't say things because if, if you know me, I'm one of those guys who will snap back real quick and I can say real stuff that'll like get you. <laughs> but I, I always I see my find myself uh, typing things and erasing it. Because I'm like, nah, I can't do that. I can't get into it with this person, and then because then I look like the bad guy. And uh, do you, because you're in Seattle, do you travel to Cleveland sometimes for the games? I travel to every home game. Every home game, okay. I do every home. Actually, I have to do the, the TV show every home game. Okay. I, I do uh, in studio away games. I get to do it from Zoom, and everyone else is in the studio. Okay, so you're doing that while also the podcast. But so the podcast is not as much of the coverage as your full-time job or not full-time, but one of your TV gigs. So you get, you go the home games. So you're the face of the Browns in certain ways of all that stuff. That, so that kind of changed. And I'm interested for another story or another time, I guess, to do, delve into how you went from track coaching track, then to back into the analyst position. Do you want to go to any of the bigger ones for to be an analyst? Do you want to, end up on the NFL today at one point or, or ESPN or all that. People have asked me that. And, and I think if given the opportunity, I would, I would definitely do it because that's, that's when it's getting bigger. You're getting at a higher level. However, I do like being able to go back to Cleveland every week and, and talk Browns. I like being in that environment because it's different than being there when you play. You know, I, I feel like I have more fun. I'm able to just interact with people more doing now that I'm retired and, and doing this. And so I get to find out what people are really thinking when we're talking about the coaching or the, or the players or what the Browns should do. And it's, and, it, and it's more fun. I, I, I have fun doing that. And so I like being uh, in Cleveland and doing things there. But obviously, if I was given the opportunity to go bigger, I, I would probably do it. All right. So where can you go ahead and check out? Your podcast is available at the Believe Podcast. And what's the name of it again? The Dog Check, the Believe Podcast Network. All right. Awesome. And again, check you out on Twitter at and make sure he won't respond negatively, right? Just don't start a fight with me. Just don't start a fight. We'll be all right. 
is, is, it, is it just at Eric Metcalf? Eric, at Eric Metcalf 21. All right. Well, fantastic, Eric. We appreciate you coming by, talk about this and be part of the podcast magazine. And I won't hold it against you. You're a Cleveland Brown. I think you dealt with the same thing as the Steelers and Browns were trying to grow together to get to that pinnacle. And then, and then the nineties hit and then the Steelers became more of the Steelers while the Browns became no longer. <laughs> so that's now I'm that's okay because I, I, that's okay. Cause I can say I beat them. There you go. I took two punt returns against them and to and got coaches fired. I can say that. So I all that other stuff that you're talking about, ah, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> <laughs> and then and the Browns roller coaster continues, right? And that's what you're excited about because you have something to talk about every week. Hey, we're, we're coming back. We're gonna we're coming back. We'll be okay. all right. We'll, we'll see. All right. we'll okay. Go all, right. all right, see you. Okay, good talking to you, Eric. Take care. All right, take care, guys. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.